Good morning, I'm Kay. The Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 20, 2 through 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself or form whatsoever of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Mark. The New Testament reading is found in, first, in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation. Because all things were created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible, whether they are thrones or powers or rules, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things, and all things are held together in him. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Amy. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John 4, 19 through 24. The woman said, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it is necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship him in this way. God is spirit and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and truth. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to, to gather together as your people. And we pray that you would continue to speak to us, that you would open our ears to hear, you'd open our minds to understand, and that you would reach down into our hearts and continue to transform us into the image and likeness of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. It's good to see you this morning. We could use a number of adjectives probably to describe Americans, but if you were to kind of take a list of adjectives, certainly that list would include the word pragmatic. If there is anything that we can say about us as Americans, we are obsessed with results. We want to know, does this work? It's like the burning question that we have, does this work? Does it work well? Will this work for me? In fact, there's probably nothing that infuriates us so quickly, other than other drivers, besides when something doesn't work the way that it's supposed to, right? That moment when your high-speed internet is just not quite so high-speed, yeah? 
or Mac users when you get that spinning color beach ball wheel thing, whatever that is, or PC users, the blue screen of death, and it just hits your screen, and it's infuriating. Or you think about the moment where you have a car that's like 35 to 75,000 miles on it, and then check engine light comes on. You're like, no, like after 100,000 miles, I'm okay with this, but not beforehand. Or if you work in an office, when you go to the office printer, why does it say paper jam? (laughs) When there is no paper jam. (laughs) There's something about that that it's so infuriating to us because we are people who want things to be pragmatic and predictable. I mean, I think this is probably why we, as people, are constantly upgrading to something that's newer, better, faster, more efficient. It's why, as Americans, that we typically buy cars made by Toyota or Honda. Unless you live in Colorado, then it's illegal to buy anything but a Subaru. (laughs) Right? There's something about we want it to be cost-effective and reliable and efficient. We have these things. This is why our architecture, our gift of architecture to the world is the big box store. Right? This is like the best of American ingenuity <gasps> right here. It's why our suburban subdivisions are all like, here's four floor plans to choose from uh, so we can get these up quick and fast and practical and easy. We're looking for things to sort of fit within that framework. It's why chain restaurants are successful uh, all across the place. We want to know what it's going to look like when we walk in and what the menu is going to be and what the food is going to taste like. And we don't want to take any risk outside of that. And then we apply that not only to the things that we buy and the places that we eat, if we're really honest with ourselves, we also apply that to our relationships with each other. And we apply that to our relationship with God. Think about how is it that God can be more pragmatic and more predictable in our lives. Last week, we started a new sermon series on the Ten Commandments, uh, where we're taking the next 10 weeks and walking through these and trying to recognize that the Ten Commandments are so much more than arbitrary rules, sort of from a fussy God, or expired instructions that have sort of gone long past their shelf life, either because of how old they are or because of a view of what Jesus has done and his relationship or our relationship with the law because of him. But we're saying throughout this entire series, maybe the Ten Commandments are so much more. And last week, we said three things to kind of frame the Ten Commandments series for us. The first thing we said that the Ten Commandments are rooted and grounded in God's gracious deliverance. That oftentimes we think that the Old Testament law is something that Israel had to keep in order to be saved. But when we take a look at the Ten Commandments, we can see that they were not given to them when they were in Egypt. The Ten Commandments were given to God's people after he had already saved them, after he'd already rescued them. So the point of the law is not so that Israel can keep it, so that they can be saved, but instead the point of the law is to give Israel grace that they might learn how to live free lives. So the second point that we made is this, the Ten Commandments are intended to protect the freedom that God has given his people. They're not intended to be all these things restricting life for Israel, but actually protecting the things that were constantly in jeopardy for them while they found themselves in Egypt. 
supposed to protect their relationship with God, their relationship with one another, protect life and family and marriage and possessions, that they're intended to be protective and not restrictive. And the third thing we said is the Ten Commandments then actually reveal God's character and our calling. That there's something about these ten words that actually unveil for us the things that God cares deeply about and the very kind of life that God's inviting us into so that we might become more and more like him and show to the world what this God is like. And this is where we find the Ten Commandments coming from. And if we understand these ten words outside of this framework, something will go horribly wrong in the way that we read these texts. We'll start to misunderstand and misapply and misuse these scriptures unless we keep this framework. And so then we turned and we talked about the first commandment last week at the very end of the service, and we said the first commandment then, you shall have no other gods before me, is really rooted in this idea of protecting their relationship with God and calling them into an exclusive relationship with a God who set them free and the God who can actually teach them how to live free lives. That if this is going to work, if they are going to reveal God's character to the world, if they are going to live free and full lives, then that is going to come out of the abundance that comes from being closely associated with God. So we can flip the commandment and put it in the other way. It says that God is calling Israel to love the God who loves them, to serve the God who saved them, to be faithful to the God who proves himself over and over and over again to be faithful to them, to commit themselves to the God who's committed himself to them, to cling to the God who clings to them, and find that everything else sort of flows out of that. So today we're going to move on and we're going to talk then about the second commandment. And and if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. We can think about the relationship between the first commandment and the second commandment this way, where the first commandment really calls Israel to the exclusive worship of Yahweh. Call them to the exclusive worship of the God who brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, to have no other gods before him. And then we move forward into the second commandment, and it talks not so much about who to worship, but how to worship this God. Moves from talking about exclusive worship to what does proper worship look like? If we're going to worship this God, what does that worship look like? And beginning in verse 4 then, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, we read these words. He says, do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever of anything in the sky above or the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. Your version might say that I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The word there in Hebrew, the word kana, actually has two sides to it. One side of it is saying that God is zealous. In other words, that God is fully devoted to his people, that he is fully devoted to making this relationship work. And on the flip side of it, he's also jealous, that he does not want to share this affection with anyone else, that he knows if this relationship is going to work, there cannot be other gods in the mix. There's the two sides of this word, both his devotion to his people and his demand for their exclusive attention 
to him. I am a passionate God. And then he goes on, he says, I punish children for their parents' sin, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. This may be one of the most troubling verses for us in the entire Ten Commandments, because we have this sense of like, well, wait a minute, what, I thought sin was something individual, and that individuals get punished for their sin. So why is it that a parent's sin is being visited on the children to the third or the fourth generation? Why is this? The sense that we have actually within this text is the reality that sin is always social. That sin impacts every living generation. So in any given family structure, there are usually three or four families, three or four generations alive at any time. And the sins of the grandparents impact the sins of the sons and the daughters or impact the lives of the sons and the daughters and actually impact the lives of their children and their grandchildren. That this is the reality that sin has this sort of rippling effect and it impacts everybody who's alive. It's just a recognition of that, that we do not live isolated lives, but we live communal lives. And so when we violate God's ways and rhythms in the world, it doesn't just impact us, it impacts those closest to us as well. That sin is always social. But then he says, but I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice that contrast, three and four generations versus a thousand generations. It's recognizing the great gravity and immensity of God's love and grace and mercy. That that is always going to outweigh his judgment. That that is always going to be greater. So we have this commandment, though, talking about the worship of Yahweh and saying that there should not be any images made. Now, when I thought about this commandment, frequently I kind of look at it and go, well, doesn't this just kind of make sense? Like, if Israel is not supposed to have any other gods, then of course they're not going to make images and idols of other gods. Like, it just sort of seems like, uh, yeah, one A, B, See, whatever, this kind of all works together. But what's most surprising when we look at this commandment within the entire spectrum of the scriptures is that Yahweh is not only commanding Israel not to make idols and images of other gods, but he's actually commanding them not to make idols or images of him. That he's saying, when you worship me, you will not make an idol or image of me either. That's the most intriguing part of the command to me. Why is it that Yahweh would prohibit Israel from making images or idols of him? We know why he doesn't want them to make them of other gods, but why is it that God would say, hey, don't make images or idols of me either? Why would he do this? So a little bit of context to, to help us kind of think through this, talking about gods in the time of Israel, gods in the ancient Near East. We're going to do a little bit of a history lesson. Everybody cool with that? We'll get really nerdy here for a little while, and it's going to be okay. Hold on. So in the ancient world, all of the other like, nations and people were polytheists. In other words, they believed in the existence of multiple gods, and they worshipped multiple gods. All of these gods were in some way associated with some sort of cosmic sphere or natural force or geographic area, and oftentimes sort of both. They'd be associated with some sort of natural force as well as a geographic region. And what all of these gods faced was a limitation to that force. 
that the gods were limited to being able to act within that particular sphere, that gods could only work within the sphere and the power that they had control of. And so in the ancient world, this is why you needed many gods, that you did not just need a sun god during the day, you needed a moon god at night. And not only did you need a god of the land, a fertility goddess that could help bring forth crops and vegetation, you also needed a storm god that could send rain. And you certainly, in the midst of this, needed a war god to go on your behalf when you face things from other people, because the sun god and the storm god probably weren't going to help you when you were on a chariot. But you needed these multiple gods because they existed and reigned within this one sphere. And so when it came to idol making then, what frequently happened in the ancient world is that they would make an idol, a visual representation of these gods made out of like wood or metal or stone, and it frequently sort of associated this god with this power. It depicted that in this way. So here's a famous image. I don't know if you can see this very well, but this is Baal or Baal, uh, the Canaanite storm god. And if you, this is a, a pretty famous sort of relief of him. And I don't know if you can see it very well, but right here we've got him being depicted as a human. He's either depicted as a human or as a bull, as the fertile god. He's depicted in one of these two ways. Even in this image, you can see, uh, if you look very closely, he's wearing bull horns on his head. And Baal, being the storm god, is holding a lightning rod in his hand. And it goes down and he's pointing it into the ground and sending rain or storm into the land and it's causing life to come forth. That is, the image is associating the God with their particular sphere. So idols in the ancient world served to make this God knowable or accessible. Served in this kind of way. It was a tool to aid them in worship. But what happened over and over again is it happens sometimes even in our context that tools for worship become the actual objects of worship. That tools for worship become the actual objects of worship. And so they worshiped these idols. And what idols effectively did is it domesticated the God, right? It reduced the God to an inactive, inaudible picture. The God becomes mute and powerless, tamed, and controllable. This is what happens. And that actually stands in sharp contrast to how Yahweh makes himself known, how the Lord God reveals himself to Israel. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. So the Ten Commandments occur in two places, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Immediately before the second telling of the, second, of the Ten Commandments, we find this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that says this. We're going to read verses uh, 11 and 12 and then jump down to 15. So this is talking about the way that the Lord revealed himself to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. He said, Then you all came close and stood at the foot of the mountain. The mountain was blazing with fire up to the sky with darkness, cloud, and thick smoke. The Lord spoke to you out of the very fire itself. You heard the sound of words but you didn't see any form. Same word that's used in the Ten Commandments. There was only 
a voice. Verse 15, so watch your conduct closely because you didn't see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire itself. Don't ruin everything and make an idol for yourself, a form of any image, of any likeness. Then it goes on and lists every possible sort of image that you could think of making. See, when Yahweh revealed himself to Israel, they did not see any form. They saw fire and they heard words. There was no form there was only a voice. And this is what that tells us about Yahweh. It tells us these things. First of all, that Yahweh is formless. In other words, he cannot be confined or controlled. That yeah. Yahweh is formless. He cannot be confined or controlled. Unlike the gods of the other nations and countries around them that needed a god for every sphere that was confined or limited to that sphere, Yahweh transcends all of that. He is formless. He cannot be confined to any realm. His power is not limited to any realm. His presence is not limited to any region, but instead his power is greater than all powers and his presence extends beyond all boundaries. That this is who their God is. You don't need any other gods when you have a God like this. A God who is uncontrollable and unconfined. Yahweh is formless. Jesus picks up on this in his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well in our gospel reading. They get into this whole debate about mountains. Our ancestors worship God on this mountain. Your ancestors worship God on this mountain, trying to confine God to a geographic place. And Jesus says, no, 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 there's a time coming. and is now here when God's worshipers will not worship on this mountain or the other one, but they'll worship him in spirit and truth. And he says this, he says, God is spirit. God is formless. And therefore, it's necessary to worship God in spirit and in truth. It's necessary to worship him in a manner that's consistent with who he is. God is spirit. He cannot be confined to one place or to one area. And our worship, therefore, should not confine him or attempt to control him. Our worship should not confine him or attempt to control him. Second thing that we see about Yahweh in Deuteronomy chapter 4 is that Yahweh speaks. And he cannot be silenced. That Yahweh speaks. The prophets and the psalmists are frequently kind of making these sharp contrasts between the God of Israel and the God of the nations, particularly between Yahweh and the idols of the nations. And they say things like, idols are made, but Yahweh made you. Idols are carried, but Yahweh carried you out of Egypt. But the thing they say most often over and over and over again is that idols are mute, but Yahweh speaks. The idols are mutes, but Yahweh speaks. See, reducing Yahweh to an image actually gags God. And a God who can't speak can't make demands of us. Christopher Wright said it this way. He said, idolatry, therefore, is fundamentally an escape from the living voice and the commands of the living God. That idolatry is an escape from the living voice and the commands of the living God. 
See, Israel was called to keep covenants. They were called to listen, to hear to the words of God and to do them, to live in accordance with God's ways and God's will. They were called to live in such a way that they were obedient to God's commands and therefore transformed into his image and made him known to the world that way. It was through their obedience to do the word of God, to do what he says, they were to become a witness to the world. And so to make an image of Yahweh would fundamentally keep them away from their calling, to be the ones who hear and do the word of the living God. So therefore, our worship must actually be consistent with both Yahweh's character and our calling. It must be consistent with who God has revealed himself to be and who he's called us to be. And this is actually the heart of the second commandment, is to get into those things, to actually worship God for who he is and worship in such a way that causes us to become the people that he's called us to be. How we worship must be consistent with who we worship. So our worship cannot confine, control, or silence God. Instead, worship must embrace his spirits and lead us to submit to his word. That worship must embrace his spirits and teach us and show us how to live lives submitted to the God who speaks. Of course, Israel over and over and over again breaks this commandment. It's actually not even long after the commandments are first given that they're doing this with the golden calf at the base of the mountain. And the interesting thing is, is that we oftentimes think, oh, they're going and they're worshiping other gods at this point. But if you read the text really closely, Aaron, in talking about this golden calf, refers to the golden calf as Yahweh. He actually says, these are the God that brought you up out of Egypt. So tomorrow, let's have a festival to the Lord. Let's have a festival to Yahweh that they're actually associating this image with him. But of course, for us, we're not doing this, right? We're not like creating golden calf statues again and putting them all over our house. But the second commandment invites us, though, to ask the question, do we impose any limits on God that he does not impose on himself? Do we try to confine or control or silence him in any way? If so, how and why? I think there's three things that we typically do in our day and time. I think the first thing that we do is that we distance God. That when we're thinking about who this God is, we emphasize his greatness, his transcendence over his nearness, just as Pastor Glenn was talking about today. That we, in some ways, if it's possible, think of God as too big, too big to notice, too big to care, too big to be able to actually be aware of what's happening in our lives, that we distance God in some way. So we think of God as sort of this distant, displaced, disinterested deity. And whether that is something because we feel like he did it or because we have done it ourselves and distance him. Charles Taylor in his work on the secular age talks about how one of the distinctives of our age is that we live life within an imminent frame. That we live life focused simply on life on the ground. The example that's given by Pastor Glenn and others at various times is thinking about a game at Wimbledon 
and all we're cared about is the game that's going on on the court, and it might as well be that the roof is closed because we are unaware of what's going on somewhere else, that we become so focused here that we become unaware or disinterested in God in the same way that maybe we think that he's become unaware or disinterested in us. We think if God exists, then maybe he's unwilling or unaware to do anything about it. So we distance God in some way. The second thing that we do is that we actually domesticate God as well. And we do this by actually taking it to the reverse side is that we begin to emphasize God's nearness over his greatness, his imminence over his transcendence. And in some way, we make God too small, too weak, too powerless to actually do something in our lives. We reduce God in some way and we make him safe. We make him pragmatic and predictable. That we treat God like a big box store. And we put him in that sort of place. We rob God of his power and his authority. This is where we're reminded, of course, of that great quote from C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Susan's asking about Aslan and she's a little bit terrified. And she asks the question, is he safe? And the response is, safe? Who said anything about safe? <laughs> of course he isn't safe, but he's good. But we want a safe God, a pragmatic, predictable God that sort of works in our ways. The third thing that we do is that we diminish God, that we impose our own limitations on him. I think this works several ways. Number one, I think we oftentimes limit what we believe that God can do in our lives, that we diminish him and what it is that he can actually do in us. And I remember just even recently having these sort of moments of wrestling through things from personality assessments. There's a personality assessment uh, that really nails my personality and says that my inner drive or desire is to make everything right, which makes me a perfectionist uh, and at times struggling with working way, way, way too much. And there's a part of me that's just then because of the inability to make everything right, I don't know if you've tried, it never actually works out very well, <laughs> that there is a deep sort of cauldron of anger underneath this serene exterior. And there are these moments when we hear these things and we think, oh, but that's just the way that I am. And I cannot change. And then we correspondingly say, and there's no way that God can change me. There's no way that God can teach us and show us a better way to live. We begin to limit what God can do in our lives. Or we begin to sort of look at other things. Maybe it's uh, habits or addictions that we face, and we say, there's no way. There's nothing that can be done about this, that I'm simply stuck with this. And there's nothing that God can do to set me free. Or we look at deep pains in our hearts, wounds that have been inflicted upon us, we think there's no way that I'll ever be healed from this. There's no way that I'll recover. Or we think about the things that we have done. I mean, there's no way that anybody could forgive me for this. There's no way God could forgive me for that thing. If anybody knew. Oh, if anybody knew. And we begin to limit what God can do in our lives. We say, God, you can't do that. Maybe for somebody else, but certainly not for me. 
Or maybe we go the opposite direction. We begin to think that we limit what God can do through our lives. We need to say, yes, God can work through this person. He can work through that person. Certainly God can use them in that way, but there's no way he can use me. I remember showing up at uh, a Christian school my freshman year. I'd been a Christian for two years. Uh, Show up on campus at this Christian school, start meeting all these people, and start hearing about their lives. And they're leading worship, and they're preaching, and they're doing all of these really kind of cool things. They're talking about the spiritual gifts that they have. I'm like, what are those? How do those things work? And then they're starting to say, well, like, here's what they're, like, I pray, and then I hear God's voice or I pray and God gives me a word for someone, and I'm like, I pray and I sleep? Like, this is what happens? Or they're like, I pray for people and they get better. I'm like, I pray for people, I think they get worse. And you begin to sort of doubt, like, God, why am I even here? What, how could you possibly, I've only been a Christian for two years. I'm a mess. My whole life is kind of a wreck. Certainly there's no way that you can use me. And I remember in this moment in worship, being just really brokenhearted about this, going, God, why am I even here? Certainly you can't use me. And this guy comes over to me. His name was Elijah. He comes and sits next to me, and he goes, hey, I think God wants you to know. And immediately I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. You get another word from the Lord. (laughs) And he comes over, and he sits down next to me. He says, "I, I feel like God wants you to know that God can use a smile and a hug. He can use smiles and hugs to advance his purposes in people's lives. So I just started smiling and hugging everybody. Like, I didn't know what else to do. It was like, okay, if God, you can use this. I'm going to stop praying for people and just start hugging them. <laughs> I'm going to find a way to participate in what it is that you are doing. God can use you. He can work through you. He can work through the things that are going on in your life and even the things that have been the hardest. God can redeem and bring life to and work through in some ways. I think the other thing that we do is we oftentimes bind God to work in our way, on our time, or for our purposes. That we bind God to our agendas. That we bind God to our demands instead of binding ourselves to his. That we say, God, you have to do it this way, and you have to do it now or else. I'm going to go the other way. And we begin to bind God in those situations. And so we make this reverse thing. We believe that God is aware and we believe that he's able, but we begin to bind him to our things, forgetting the fact that God is the unbound God. Yeah. Then the other thing that we do is that we oftentimes limit God, particularly God's care and God's concern to one issue to one cause, to one color, to one economic status, to one marital status, to one political party, to one church, or to one nation. And God refuses to be limited in those ways. God is not bound and limited to the things that we care about or the things that we're comfortable with. God's care knows no boundaries. And God primarily, though he does comfort us when we're grieving, he oftentimes makes us more uncomfortable than we'd like to admit. He's not safe, but he is good. 
So what happens when we do that is we fall into the old quote from Voltaire. It says, God made us in his image and we've returned the favor. And we begin to sort of limit God to the very things that we feel limited by. And so when we think about then, if these are the ways that we diminish God or domesticate God or distance God, then what right worship should do, what worship should do in its truest sense is that right worship should recall us, recall us to the God who reveals himself by the word and the Spirit. It should recall us to the God who is formless and recall us to the God who speaks and should recall us to the God whose power knows no limits, but also whose presence knows no limits either. It should recall us to the God who can do the miraculous in our lives and the God who can do the miraculous through our lives, but the God who is deeply interested in transforming our lives into his image and his likeness, into taking us on the great journey of seeing his kingdom come and his will be done, not ours. That this is fundamentally who God is, and worship should recall us to that, should help us to actually embrace the Spirit and to learn what it means to submit our lives to the Word. It beckons us to listen again to the God who speaks and invites us to be transformed by His Word and His Spirit. That this is what right worship does it pulls us back into that place and reminds us that God is not bound in the ways that we try to bind him. But instead, he is the God who throughout history has revealed himself through word and spirit. He spoke to Moses through a burning bush. He spoke to the Israelites through fire. That he came in the person of Jesus Christ Full, the Word became flesh and was full of the Holy Spirit. And the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire fell on the church and they spoke the Word of God boldly. This is how God reveals himself and this is how God works in our lives. And God's work cannot be limited in the ways that we think it can or the ways that we try to limit it. And this is, not, this is no more clearly seen than when we come to the table. Because we serve the God who in order to redeem the world entered into it. And we serve the God that in order to defeat sin and death actually died. There's nothing pragmatic or predictable about that. The God who died on our behalf and was raised again to new life. It's a way of saying that there's anything dead in us. God can raise that to life again. Amen? Now let's pray as we come to the table. Gracious Father, we thank you that this is who you are, that you are the formless God, that you are spirit and that you speak. And so as we come to the table, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us, that your word would speak to us, that your spirit would work through us, that your word would speak through us as well. Help us to take off the limits that we place inside on you and do the very things in our lives that we so desperately crave and do the things through our lives that make you known to the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.